Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of, and that from God. From it has, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Amen. Let me pray for our time in God's word this evening. Father, we are here to worship you. And we pray that, Spirit, you would illuminate your truth to us tonight as we study your word. Christ be exalted. May we have joy in living and in dying for Christ. May we have joy in our faith in Christ. May we have joy in suffering for Christ. And may you be glorified. I pray that you would clear any distractions from our minds this evening and that we would behold your glory and worship you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when I was younger, I think most of you guys know this, have been around for a while, um, in junior high and in high school, I played on the football team and uh, it was a lot of fun. How many of you guys have ever played in a competitive sport, like on a team before? Okay, so most of you guys. So you know, maybe, that there's a difference a lot of times of of, uh, being on the home team versus being in an away game and being the visiting team. And I think that became even more apparent to me when I was in high school. We would travel much further uh, for our away games. And sometimes going to an away game... Uh, you walked in just to a very different environment. It could be a very hostile environment, uh, and partly just because of uh, the different culture that you are stepping into. Uh, the high school I attended was a very, um, uh, I guess, it was a public school, but it was a very upper-class white school, um, and sometimes we would travel to uh, not as upper class or white schools. And that became very apparent as our bus would roll up to the school uh, and we would receive all kinds of opposition from the other school, uh, whether just getting off the bus and just from the people uh, and the things that they would say to us, uh, say about us. Uh, and then we'd go into the locker room. And as an away team, it's just different, right? When you're home, like, it's good. Like, it's your locker, your own personal locker. You know the system. You know what's going the building, the facilities, everything that's going on. But you, you, go, you go away and say you go away far from home, they're not so welcoming. And you get into the locker room. You don't know what's going on. You, you, you're trying to get accustomed to where the locker room is. You, you go out to the field to warm up, and it's different, and it's just this hostile environment sometimes, especially if the game was like a game that mattered, like a playoff game or something, or a championship game. And then when it came down to game time, I mean, everything in that stadium was just against you. Obviously, the team across from you is against you, but all this, the fans in the stands, right? I mean, just the way in which they do the music. I mean, everything, it just feels like they're all against you. 
And if you've been in the situation, you know that it is essential that as a team, you stay united together. In fact, there are many times in which maybe we would be against ourselves, like we'd be getting on ourselves. And if you've been on a team before, maybe you've heard your players or your captains or even your coaches say, stop like playing against yourself. We're already having to deal with playing against the opponent. Stop trying to defeat ourselves. It's important that we would stay united as a team. And that was the case for every game that we needed to stay united as a team. But I think especially when we are the away team. When everything's against us, when we're in an unfamiliar territory, we needed to stick together as a team if we wanted to come out victorious. Well, here in verse 27, Paul makes a shift in his letter. And if you remember from last week, he just shared the report of himself and his own condition. And now here he's transitioning to an appeal and an exhortation to the congregation. And he tells this church Opposition will come. But through the opposition, you need to remember your citizenship in heaven and be united together as fellow citizens. And he starts this in verse 27. He really just rolls right through chapter 2. I think that this chapter break here that's coming up in chapter 2. Remember, Paul didn't write in chapters, just one letter. These were put in later. And I think... Unfortunately, this might separate it in our minds as if he just has a quick thought here to end chapter 1, then chapter 2 is a new thought. I don't think that's how it is. I think he just rolls right into his thought to chapter 2. What he's saying here is that, look, as citizens of heaven, we should expect opposition here on earth. And here, tonight's passage, verse 27 through 30, he talks about the opposition that comes externally. Those outside. And he encourages the believers, stand firm in the gospel in the midst of suffering for Christ. And then he rolls right into chapter 2, which we'll see next week, that he warns of the opposition, not externally, but internally, within the body of Christ. And he says, instead, we need to be humble and compassionate and united together in Christ. As citizens of heaven, we ought to be united together in Christ. Whether that be from external opposition or whether that be from internal opposition. Well, tonight we're going to look at the first, the external opposition. And in this passage, Paul makes clear that the Christian will receive persecution and opposition. But as citizens of heaven, we are to stand firm and live in accordance with the gospel. So tonight we're going to look at three ways, we're going to have three main points in which Christians ought to be united as citizens of heaven and live in accordance with the gospel. So first, we're going to see walk as citizens. That we are to walk as citizens, verse 27a. We'll have two subpoints for each. Walk as citizens. First, we see to live a life that is consistent with your citizenship. Live a life that is consistent with your citizenship. Twenty-seven A says, "Only let your manner of life." Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul starts this new section saying, only. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, I think communicates the meaning of the word. It translates it as saying, just one thing. Right? ESV. Only. The CSB says, just one thing. And Karl Barth, he describes it as if Paul's lifting a warning finger. And he's saying, just one thing. Just one thing is very important. Listen to this. Just one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, even this phrasing of let your manner of life be worthy. That can be difficult to translate, at least to translate it succinctly, to communicate the meaning of the word being used here. And in short, I won't get into all the details, but in short, it's a compound word that includes the word for city-state. Basically, he's saying, live in accordance to your city-state. Live in accordance to your citizenship. And so again, how the CSB translated, the Christian Standard Bible, it says literally this. This is how the CSB reads. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think it's a beautiful way to describe the meaning of what Paul is saying here. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is his topic sentence, and it sets up where he's going to go from here. The Christians are not just to proclaim the gospel, as he's been talking about the, the first part of this letter. He's not just to proclaim the gospel with their lips, but they are to live it out with their lives. Yes, they should proclaim it with their lips, but it shouldn't just stop there. The gospel should shape our lives to live a life that is consistent with our identity as citizens of heaven. So how is it that the Christian is to live their life in a way that is consistent with their citizenship? I'm going to present four ways for you. So if you're taking notes, here are four sub-sub points. How should the Christian live their life in a way that's consistent with their citizenship? First, it's exclusive. It is exclusive. You do not have a dual citizenship. Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. Yes, you do live in this world, but not as a citizen, as a pilgrim. Remember, Paul just talked about that. If you remember last week, verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Remember that word for depart? He's saying that he's ready to break camp. He's ready to tear down his tent and move on. He's ready to be with Christ. He's ready to be home to where his citizenship belongs. He's ready to depart. Christian, you must remember that you are a citizen of heaven exclusively. God has brought you out of this kingdom and he has brought you into his kingdom. I think Paul says it beautifully in Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14. Listen to this. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christian, you're not just a person of the world who just adds something to your life. It's not what Christianity is. 
that, that, that you are just the same as those in the kingdom of darkness, except for the fact that you've added Christianity to yourself. And so that's how you're different. No, you have been positionally transferred into a different kingdom. And you are now a citizen of that kingdom. Or do you see the difference there? Christianity is not an addition to your life. It's a transformation. You do not have dual citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven. Secondly, how is it that the Christian is to live their life in a way that's consistent with their citizenship? In your interests or your priorities. In your interests or priorities. See, being a citizen of a different kingdom, it changes your interests. It changes your priorities. And of course, this world, your, your old kingdom, it fights for your attention. And it seeks to distract you and to tempt you. And attempt you to prioritize your life for the things of this world and not for his kingdom. Christian, if we are to live a life that is consistent with our citizenship, then we ought to prioritize kingdom work. We're not to live for our old kingdom, but we're to live for his kingdom now. That we're not interested in the things of this world, but what are we interested in? We are interested in his glory. Do your interests, do your priorities line up with that of God's kingdom? Does it line up with your citizenship? Or do they line up with the things of this world? You see, Christian, as a citizen of heaven, let me ask you, how are you prioritizing kingdom work where your citizenship belongs? Thirdly, in your submission. In your submission. Now, of course, everyone, all are subject to God, right? He is the ultimate authority overall, yes. But as a citizen of his kingdom now, Christian, your submission and your allegiance is to God. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Uh, Luke, are you trying to change the slides? I am not. Okay. No, no. We, these are four sub-points to the sub-point. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Romans 6, starting verse 11, says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members of God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now fast forward to verse 17. He goes on to say, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You see, we no longer submit to sin. And Jeff was even talking about this tonight. We're no longer obedient to sin. But now through Christ, we submit to God. And we obey Him. See, as citizens of His kingdom, we live in submission to Him. 
So Christian, if you're a citizen of his kingdom, do you submit to the Father? Do you submit to his word? Or is your life characterized by an obedience to the passions of your flesh? Fourthly and lastly, in this sub-sub point, is in your purpose. In your purpose. As a citizen of heaven, now you will live with purpose. And that purpose is what? It is to glorify God. That you are here on earth, but remember, not as a citizen of earth, but now as a pilgrim, as an ambassador of Christ. And in that you have purpose. That you are not just here randomly. You are not here to live for the world, but you are here to live for the glory of God. So, As a citizen of heaven, are you living here with purpose? And are you living with the purpose to glorify God in all things? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. And Paul says, just one thing. Just one thing. Live a life that is consistent with your citizenship. Now tied directly into that is living a life that is consistent with the gospel. For it is the gospel that is at the core of your new citizenship. So secondly, as we look at to walk as citizens, we see to live a life that is consistent with the gospel. Live a life that is consistent with the gospel. We're still in verse 27a. As he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, do not misunderstand Paul when he says this. He's not saying that you need to live a life worthy of the gospel, as in you need to become worthy of God's love. Please do not misunderstand this. This is very important. When he says that, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, don't think, okay, I need to start living worthily so that I can become worthy to receive God's love. That's not what he means by worthy. In fact, that's the complete opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you are not worthy. You cannot make yourself worthy. You cannot live like a Christian and then therefore become a Christian. That's not what he's saying here. Remember, Paul is speaking to those who are already citizens of heaven. And he's saying that their life ought to be consistent with their citizenship and with the gospel. He's saying to the Philippians, look, you say that you've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say that you have been saved by him. You are claiming that you are a citizen of heaven. Let the way in which you live your life match what you say. Let the way in which you live your life show that you are indeed a citizen of heaven. You see, your conduct, the way of living, that is the outcome of what has already happened inside. Guys, this is crucial. We cannot get this backwards. But sadly, many people do. Sadly, many people, they get it backwards and they think, well, if I do live like a Christian, then I will become a Christian. 
If I do become more committed to reading my Bible, then I will be a Christian. If I do start praying more, then I'll be a Christian. If I do start attending church and taking good notes, and I do start uh, obeying my parents, and I do start living a life for God, then yeah, then I will be a Christian. That's the complete opposite of the gospel. That is not true. The Christian life is, is not living a life of, of this daily checklist of rules and regulations saying, okay, today I read my Bible and I prayed and, and I took out the garbage without my mom saying, I didn't yell at my brother and, and, and I loved God, I stopped cussing, I did look, check, 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 I did good. I'm living the good Christian life. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is to live a life in line with the gospel that communicates the gospel. That is an outpour of the gospel. It means that even after you've become a Christian, you will continue to sin. You will continue to struggle. And yet you will continue to be forgiven and loved by God. And his grace continues to be poured out on you. It means that you are now at peace with God through the blood of Christ. It means that you recognize that there is nothing that you have done that has earned you this love. But it is all by his grace through faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to live in line with the gospel. And what is the message of this gospel in which we're talking about? It is that we have sinned and that we have rebelled against the holy God. And due to our sin, we deserve and we will receive our just penalty, which is the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire. And yet in spite of our sin and in spite of our unworthiness, God sent his son to add humanity to himself and to die in our place. And so on that cross, the Son of God became the substitute for those who believe. That Jesus, the perfect God-man, bore our wrath upon his shoulders. And so in him, the wrath of God was satisfied. And in him, we have forgiveness of our sins, that we have been redeemed and we have been rescued. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering over sin and death. And so we share in that victory. And we have new life in Jesus Christ. And our spiritually dead soul has been raised with him. And you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that all of this is a free gift of God. It is given to us by his grace. That we cannot earn it. And we cannot deserve it. And yet he gives it to us freely. Received by faith. And so to live in light of the gospel. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Is to live in light of that message. It is to live in light of the grace of God. It is to live in light of his unchanging, infinite, perfect love for you. It is to live in light of the fact that he has already accepted you in Christ. And so we don't live to seek acceptance because we've already been accepted. And we are eternally accepted. And we are fully and eternally secure in Christ. 
This is what it means to live in light of the gospel. And as a result, you now live in accordance to your new citizenship. That the gospel has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. That you are now a citizen of his kingdom. And so now you live for God and for his kingdom. Not for the kingdoms here on earth. Gospel living is living in light of the fact that you've already been saved. We don't live trying to earn God's acceptance of us. Rather, we live in response to God having already accepting us through Christ. And as a result, we live a life that is consistent with the gospel. And what does that result in? It results in being conformed into the image of Christ. It means new desires. It means hating and repenting of sin. It means putting on obedience to God. It means a transformed life. You cannot say that God has saved you, that he has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness and has made you a citizen of his kingdom and yet live the same as you did when you were a citizen of the, of the kingdom of darkness. It does not make sense. That's not living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ is to live by his grace in obedience to him for his glory. So let me ask, where does your life say your citizenship is? What does your life reflect your citizenship is still in the kingdom of darkness or that it is in God's kingdom in light of the gospel and his grace. Well, first we see to walk as citizens. The next we see to stand as citizens. To walk as citizens and to stand as citizens. The second half of 27 through 28. First, we'll look at 27b, and we're going to see to be united with one another in the gospel. Be united with one another in the gospel. Twenty-seven B. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The first thing we notice is that Paul says, look, I may be with you, but I may not. He doesn't know the outcome of the trial. But whether he's released from prison and he sees them again or not, the gospel will prevail. And his hope for this church is that they would stand firm, that their hope would be in Christ and the gospel and not in Paul. And indeed, that is where our hope should lie as well, in Christ and his gospel. Our hope should not be in any man. Our hope should not be in any church. And please do not ever think, and I don't think anyone here does, but please do not ever think that you need me to stand firm in the gospel that you need me to grow in your faith, to learn God's word, 
to live for Christ. You don't need me. You don't need Pastor Tony. You have Christ and his spirit and his word, which is sufficient for salvation and living in godliness. There will be a day when I will no longer be here. There will be a day when Tony will no longer be here. And the gospel will continue to be proclaimed. And so whether Paul returns to them or not, his desire is that he would hear that they are standing firm in one spirit and one mind. See, there's a spiritual unity amongst these believers in Christ. It's not this superficial, surface-level unity. It's not like, oh, they all root for the same sports team. That's cool. They all have similar interests. They're all of the same race. They're all in the same social class. They all have these similarities. No, it is deeper than that. There is a spiritual unity. They are united through Christ. And it is important, as Paul says in Ephesians, to be eager to maintain that unity. Because we are in spiritual warfare. And remember, we are pilgrims. We are ambassadors in a foreign land. Remember, our citizenship is in heaven. We are on the away team here. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're getting off the bus and it's like, woo! They're throwing some shade. Is that what people say? Right? Like, oh, man, we got to be careful out here. We must be united together in one spirit, in one mind. And so Paul describes this in two ways. He says, stand firm. And he says, strive side by side. In fact, both are specific words that are meant to convey a picture. He's using an illustration here. First, he says to stand firm. And that's, he's using an illustration of a soldier standing firm. To stand firm and to hold one's ground. Imagine a soldier standing firm, holding one's ground. To not waver in the spiritual warfare. But to stand your post, soldier. How many of you have ever heard of the 300 Spartans? Okay, many of you guys, right? Like, crazy story. And maybe, like, you've seen the movie, This is Sparta! Boom! Right? Like, that was big back in my day. I don't know. I wouldn't recommend it, but whatever. <laughs> it was a thing, right? Yeah, you remember, yeah, you remember that. Right, it was a thing. Everyone was kicking everyone. Sparta. Yeah. Anyways, right. Basically, there there were 300 Spartans, which was not that many. Okay, just that's the point. That stood their ground, I believe, against Xerxes the Great and his like massive army. But these 300 Spartans, they stood their ground. That's what he's saying. He's saying, stand firm like a soldier. And I think the Philippians, and I think we too, we can feel like we're outnumbered in this world, like 300 Spartans against this massive army. We are citizens of a different kingdom, and it feels like maybe the enemy has outnumbered us here. But we must stand firm in one spirit, in one mind, under the reign of Jesus, our king, who really has already won the war. But let us stand firm together with one another. And then he says to strive side by side. And he's using an illustration of an athlete. In fact, the, the word here for athlete is, is kind of what he uses here. And many commentators draw out that it's a word used for like team wrestling. When he's saying striving side by side. Like, like think of like giant linemen on a football team that strive side by side. And you, you need every piece working in unison together to overcome the enemy. 
And in the same way, as citizens of heaven, we must be of one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, Paul uses imagery, that of a soldier and that of an athlete. And I believe it's to communicate unity, to communicate hard work, to communicate perseverance, and really to communicate that there's something worth fighting for. Both the athlete and the soldier would say that. And what does he say is worth fighting for? He says right here, for the faith of the gospel. That's why he's saying stand firm. That's why he's saying strive side by side. Why? For the faith of the gospel. That's what's worth fighting for. He doesn't say for a faith of a gospel. He says for the faith of the gospel. There is one. And it's worth fighting for. To stand firm. To strive side by side. Guys, let me tell you. There are many false gospels that are attacking our churches today. And we must stand firm and strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. One of the false gospels right now that's everywhere is a false gospel of tolerance. Saying that that we should be accepting of everyone, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of what they say about Christ... Love wins. And so we shouldn't tell people that if they believe differently than us, then they're wrong. In fact, Christians are often accused of being intolerant of others because we say that Jesus is the only way that no one comes to the Father except through Him. And sadly, some in the name of Christ begin sharing a false gospel of tolerance and not a gospel of Jesus Christ saying that there are multiple ways to God. That's a false gospel. I think another false gospel is called the prosperity gospel. And guys, it is rampant in America today, especially in the Bay Area. I would say especially in our area, we need to beware of this false gospel because they have turned the gospel of Jesus Christ into a circus. They have turned it into a man-centered, a man-glorifying gospel in which man is at the center. It teaches that if, if we have enough faith, or if we do enough good, or if we love enough people, or if we give enough money, right? It all sounds great. If we do these things, then God will love us, and God will bless us, usually in the form of riches or health. That's what God wants. And it completely removes the grace of God. And it makes it all about man. But it's an attractive false gospel to many. And sadly, many have fallen to it. And what is sad is that people are going in and out of church, believing that they are hearing the word of God being preached, but Christ is not preached. Man is preached. And how to better yourself is preached. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, these are just a couple of examples. Some that are close to home. And we must be aware so as to not fall to these ourselves. And so that we may stand up and proclaim truth 
in the midst of this false teaching. As citizens of heaven, we need to be united together in the gospel. Next, as we stand as citizens, we are to be courageous with one another in the mission. Verse 28. We are to be courageous with one another in the mission. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Let's focus on 28a. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. It is scary sometimes to stand up for truth, yes? Is it scary sometimes to speak up and proclaim the true gospel? Yes. And Paul says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. I challenge you, be courageous with one another in the mission and the proclamation of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be content just sitting on the sidelines. Do not be okay with hearing others blaspheme the name of Christ. Do not be comfortable with false gospels being proclaimed as true gospels. Now, I'm not advocating for violence. I'm not advocating for picking a fight. I am advocating for standing firm, for striving side by side, and being courageous to proclaim the true gospel no matter the outcome or the consequence, even if it means suffering for Christ. Which is where Paul is going to go in the next verse. Will you partake and strive in making the true gospel of Jesus Christ known to the world around us? We are citizens of his kingdom. And we are on mission here. And he goes on in 28 to say this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. You see, standing firm, striving side by side, receiving opposition of the gospel from your opponents, he's saying it's a sign of two things. It's a sign of, a sign of their destruction and a sign of your salvation. This is the message of the gospel. You see, for the unbeliever, those who refuse to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, destruction awaits you. Judgment and condemnation is your future. And for those truly in Christ, salvation awaits you. You have been saved, and you will be saved. See, this is a confirmation for both the believer and the non-believer. Salvation and destruction. So let me be clear again, that if you are not in Christ, destruction awaits you. As long as you reject Him and His gospel... You remain condemned. But there is hope in Christ. His gospel says that by grace and through faith in him, you will be saved. And if you are a believer, you can be assured of your salvation. In that assurance and as a citizen of heaven, now be bold and courageous to be on mission and to proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at.
our last section, and it will be our quickest, is to suffer as citizens, verses 29 and 30. To suffer as citizens. And first in verse 29, we see to suffer for Christ. To suffer for Christ. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There are two things that have been granted to the Christian from God for the sake of Christ. To believe in him and to suffer for his sake. Do you see that even to believe in Christ has been granted to you? See, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that it is all by grace, that it is unearned, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we'll say, okay, well then isn't your faith a work? Like it seems like Christianity, yeah, sure, it's all by grace, except for that one thing, except for your faith. You have to do that. That's that 1% in which we contribute and say, see, I place my faith in Christ. So I'm doing something. It's not all by grace. There's a little bit of works. That of placing my faith in him is what one would say. And Paul would say, no. Here Paul says, no, the faith in Christ was granted to you. You see, even our faith is by his grace. For in our natural state, we're spiritually blind. We are spiritually dead. And it's not until the Holy Spirit illuminates our soul and he gives us eyes to see and he removes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and he grants us faith. It is then that we believe. Is it our faith? Is it our personal faith? Do we actually believe? Yes. Yes, we believe. It's our faith, our personal faith in Jesus Christ. But it is by his grace that we believe. It is because he granted that faith to us by grace. Now, not only has he granted us faith, but he's also granted to us that we may suffer for his sake. This is not a trade-off. This is not, hey, on the positive side, he gives you faith. But on the downside, you have to suffer for him a little bit. It's a little bit of a trade-off, but it's worth it. No, both are blessings from him. And I don't think it's referring to suffering j- just in general, although it could be implied, but I think it's more referring to suffering for Christ. Why? Because he says, but also suffer for his sake. Being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's easy to understand that our salvation is a gift from God. But do you view suffering for Christ in the same way? As a gift from God? See, it it is a privilege. It is a blessing. It is a gift to suffer for the sake of Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is a blessing? You see, I think if we truly believed it, if we truly believed it, then we would be more courageous then to live boldly for Christ than to proclaim him. Because what holds us back most of the time from proclaiming Christ? Usually it's some kind of suffering that will result from it, right? Some kind of persecution. But if we believed it for what it truly is, a gift, then I think we'd be less hesitant to proclaim Christ. Christian, we should not be surprised at the suffering that is to come. Remember, we are citizens of a different kingdom. 
The gospel is a complete contradiction to what the world stands for. As we live for God's kingdom, we will be at odds with this kingdom. In fact, our Lord and Savior said himself that if the world hated him, surely it will hate us. 2 Timothy 3.12, I mean, it says it so clearly. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear on it. Living as a citizen of heaven in light of the gospel will inevitably bring some shape or form of persecution into your life. This is the kind of missional life that we should be living one where the world says, you know what, that rubs me the wrong way. One that says, Jesus is king. And we must not be afraid of persecution, but we must see it as a gift that has been granted to us from God. In fact, what J Jesus even says, what, hey, the worst they can do to you is what? They can kill you. And as Paul said, just a few verses, well, great, to die is gain. See, we have nothing to fear in suffering for Christ. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. He said, quote, They can pour forth their venom, their sarcasm, and their scorn. They, they can ruin your life and your career, perhaps. But they leave you uninjured in everything that is vital and eternal. End quote. Remember that your citizenship is in heaven. Be eternally minded. And know that suffering for the sake of Christ has been granted to you by God. Lastly, we suffer together. Verse 30. We suffer together. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, Paul's not saying, hey, have fun with the suffering. Let me know how that's working out for you. Paul's had his fair share of suffering for the sake of Christ. And he has no plans on it stopping unless they execute him and he gets to be with the Lord. He's saying, hey, as a fellow citizen of heaven, we will suffer together for the sake of Christ. Let us live in a manner worthy of the gospel and stand firm together, even in the midst of persecution. You see, Christian, we do not suffer alone. We suffer together as citizens of heaven, for the sake of our King, our Lord, our Savior, our God. And I know at times you can feel like we're out there alone and it's us against the world. But Christian, you have God within you. And you have brothers and sisters around you. And we are standing firm in one spirit and one mind. And we are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, suffering for the sake of Christ. May we persevere with one another. And may we suffer with one another. And may we live boldly together for the glory of our King. Well, Paul, as he makes this transition in his letter, he shows that believers are citizens of heaven. And he warns that we must be united together because there will be opposition and there will be temptation for division that comes both externally and internally. And tonight we focused on the external pressures and persecutions that Christians may receive. 
But through it all, we ought to be united together in Christ. And so if you are a Christian, I want to end by challenging you in this way. Live your life here on earth courageously. Not fear and persecution. Live as a citizen of heaven and live in light of the gospel. And see, they all connect. In understanding the gospel and keeping the gospel central and filtering your life through the lens of the gospel, you begin living in accordance to your citizenship, which is in heaven. And you begin living missionally and courageously. You begin to no longer fear persecution. You begin proclaiming Christ. You begin living sacrificially for Him. You begin to find joy in a life lived for Christ. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the impact and the effect that He makes in one's life. Has the gospel, has He made this impact on your life? Will you live as a citizen of heaven? Now I end with this. If you're not a Christian, you are not part of this kingdom. But you are still part of the kingdom of darkness. And this kingdom will end. And it will fall. And it will lead you to eternal death and separation from God. I urge you to turn to Christ, to ask God to grant you faith and repentance. Turn to Christ and his gospel and receive the free gift of salvation in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Father, for adopting us as your children. Thank you, Father, for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We thank you for your son and for his sacrificial life and death and his victorious resurrection. We thank you, Spirit, for removing our heart of flesh, or removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. I pray, God, that we would live missionally here to proclaim your gospel that we would live for your glory, that we would live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel that is consistent and in line with your gospel. Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts even now as we discuss these things. Change us, mold us into the image of Christ. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.